0: Romans chapter number 8, which I'm sure will seem odd to some. If you've been with us, we've been preaching through the book of Jonah, um, so why in the world would we abandon that text this morning? Um, and I would encourage you not to abandon it altogether, that it is in some respect the fruit of Of our time together in the book of Jonah, and last week's message in particular, that uh, I'm going to take in a a pastoral audible, if you will, and uh, take us to the book of Romans, chapter 8, this morning. And we are going to pick up our reading in verse number 31, read to the end of the chapter. Um, Actually, let's pick up in verse number 28 read to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to reread those verses that we're going to um, delve deep into today. That's verses 31 and 32, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And as I said, to give us some context this morning, um, let us pick up our reading in verse number 28. And we know, Paul says, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is, even, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, our text, verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we praise You simply because You are worthy to be praised. Father, Your character exceeds and is exalted above all the character of all Your creation. And for that, Father, You are worthy to be praised. We know that John exhorts us in Revelation chapter 4, and that you are worthy to be praised simply because you're Creator. And by this morning we come to you not only as our Creator, but also as our Savior. You wrote out, authored that great plan of redemption before the ages began. Your Son was so faithful and gracious in carrying it out, and your Spirit so powerful to accomplish the work of the Father and the Son. And for that we praise you. Father, we trust you to continue that work this morning in time and reality, and in this little place, Father among your people and that you would continue that work by your word and by your spirit and we lean wholly on that hope alone father because we know that if you do not accomplish it it will not be accomplished so we pray that your word would go forth with power we pray that your spirit father would operate in our hearts and lives and to exalt jesus christ in such a way to draw our hearts closer to him father and than they ever have been before that you would renew our minds and that you would conform us to the image of your Son. And that you would do it this morning, Father, by the power of your Word. As it reveals Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So help us to abide in him this moment. Help us to exalt his name. And Father, and, and as we glean into that great work that he's accomplished on our behalf, may we be continually and forever changed. Uh, Father, may we lay up some treasure in heaven now. Stay our minds and give us the next hour, Father, to give to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As I said, if you were with us last week, we were in the book of Jonah. And I made the argument that Jonah, from the belly of the fish, prayed a prayer that was not original to him. In chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, what we saw was Jonah being brought back to God and restored fellowship. And as we looked at that prayer made the argument that it has been um, discovered by greater men than I for generations already, that Jonah's prayer seems to be not original to him. That it is a string of prayers that he has put together in that moment, um, as we read last week and even read this morning, Um, As our brother opened up in Psalm chapter 116, what you'll find in Psalm 116 is that Jonah prays uh, a couple of different verses even out of of that text. For example, verse number 3, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pains of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Later on, in verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of His people. What you find is, is that no less than six, possibly seven, different psalms Jonah is quoting or referencing or even directly restating um, in the belly of the fish as the Lord works providentially to bring him to the end of himself and to restore fellowship with him. Now just because they weren't original to Jonah doesn't necessarily make make Jonah a plagiarist or mean that Jonah too wasn't actually or truly his prayer. What you find is that the Word of God was stowed away in Jonah's mind and God used it in the most desperate of times as a means to draw Jonah back to himself. We don't find Jonah in the belly of the fish given supernatural revelation in the moment, but he seems to have pulled from a knowledge of God previously retained. And God uses that knowledge of him, particularly the Psalms, as a means to reconcile Jonah to God. What I mean is this, is that Jonah at a previous time had hidden the Word of God in his heart and God used that knowledge in Jonah's life during a very difficult time to restore fellowship with God. And that was the substance of his prayer. And in that, we can see, I hope, what the tremendous blessing of Scripture visitation, meditation, and memorization can be to a follower of Christ. As David said in the Psalms, I have hidden the Word of God in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. And the reason that it guards the believer against sin is probably more than one. In those times of sin, the Word stands up as a great proclaimer of truth and we understand we are accountable to God. Thus, we are restrained in that moment. Or the Word may come up beside us like a Barnabas, an encourager of the soul. In our heights of despair, we are reminded of God's great and precious promises and that will renew our faith, strengthen us in our inner men and women to carry on um, in the task that He has given us. And with that said, as I studied for that particular sermon and even um, began to, continued to chew on it throughout the rest of the week, and the table was turned on me and I hope on you. Um, As we get asked that great question, as we apply it to our own hearts, what about us? Insofar as we can, have we, have I, stored up sufficient treasure in my heart to sustain me in the greatest day of my peril, because it will come. It doesn't take long to to look into the world. It doesn't take long um, to have a family, to be a part of a church, to work um, a, a, a day's work, a week's work, a year's work, live within this community and the community at large in the midst of a sinful and a fallen world to wake up in that fallen world and to wake up with that fallen nature even within myself, that sin that is remaining and to come toe-to-toe on a weekly, if not a daily basis with Satan himself, with the uh, spirit of the age and with my own remaining sin. And the great question that will come, or should come in our own minds, is how will you persevere? How will you move forward? Is it because you're strong enough? Is it because you're smart enough? Are you more crafty than Satan himself? Um, are you, can you outwit the spirit of the age? Um, how in the world will you Persevere. How will I press on? And I will tell you, it will be because of the truth. As much as it was the revelation of God's character to the pagan sailors in chapter 1 that brought them into fellowship with God, and as much as it was the revelation of God's character in Jonah 2 through the Psalms that restored Jonah's fellowship with God, it too will be the revelation of God's character to you and me that will sustain, strengthen and restore our relationship with our Lord. It can come through the form of fresh revelation, of course, as it did in the case of the sailors, or in former revelation as was with Jonah, but I'll guarantee you that if you're going to persevere in a way that honors God and take the fight to the world, stand up as a victor in Christ, even in those days when we are being slaughtered like sheep, it will be because of God's Spirit as He uses His Word to exalt the name of Christ in your souls. I um, mean, it will be that and probably that alone. That providence, yes, brought Jonah to the end of himself. But providence in and of itself, the well in and of itself, the great storm, the pagan marriages were not enough to restore fellowship with Jonah. Um, it was the Word of God. It was those great and precious promises that in the belly of the fish... That Jonah clings to and renews and restores his faith. To get out of that fish and to stand up at the task at which he was originally called. And as I thought about that, this reality this week, as I thought about Jonah as a biblical figure, a brother in the faith, the, the story at hand, the entire biblical narrative, personal experience, not only as an individual, but even in pastoral uh, counsel, that the Christian life um, is, is not just hard, it's impossible. Um, and you are no exception. If the Word is filled with godly men, if our lives are filled with men... Um, Like those within the pages of Scripture, there's going to the the life is going to express a full range of difficulty of the Christian life, and much is necessary to persevere. I mean, as I thought about that, I thought about this text in Romans chapter number eight, and really I thought about the whole of Romans eight. Can I just share with you anecdotally, experientially? Personally, as an individual, there has not been a passage of Scripture that has been more influential in my life than Romans chapter number 8. And particularly, this um, short passage of Scripture in Romans eight thirty one through 39. And I thought, I would love nothing more, as one of the goals of this sermon, I would love nothing more than for you to memorize hide in your heart Romans 8:31 through 39 that it might preach to you time and time and time again when you are cast down and prone to wonder prone to wonder where is god and is god for me at all why is he angry with me that paul would rise up in your mind preach and proclaim these verses to you and that god would use these verses to draw you close Strengthen your faith, remind you of His love, and give you the resolve to take up arms and fight. And I think that Jonah is testimony to the reality of these verses as well. Although Jonah did not have this passage of Scripture, um, as we build a case in the book of Jonah, I'd also encourage you as we proceed forward in the weeks to come, that you would not fail to forget these verses. That as much as we are in covenant with God, and these promises are to us today, it was true of Jonah. That Jonah would persevere. That Jonah would be kept. That God was for Jonah. He was for not only the task to be accomplished, but that He was for Him. And I have no doubt in my mind, not because I am um, skilled, intellectual, or academic, or truly spiritual, uh, more than anyone else, but I am confident that if you will heed that exhortation today and that you will make Romans chapter number 8 um, one of the great tasks of the weeks to come, to visit, to meditate upon, and to hide it away in your heart, and that until you meet Christ, um, it will be a continual comfort to your soul to aid in your perseverance, to strengthen you in the journey when you face the enemy eye to eye and want to give up, as this passage of Scripture proclaims its truth to you, it will be a medicine to your soul. And thus I want to give it to you this morning very quickly. Um, now our outline will be simple. Number one, Paul's amazement. Or you could say Paul's astonishment. Number two, Paul's argument. And then number three, Paul's application. Paul's amazement or astonishment. In verse number 31, what shall we say to these things? Paul's argument, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's his argument. And then Paul's application. If that's true, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the application could almost go to the end of the chapter in verse number 39. That it's going to be the flow, the outpouring of that reality. Um, some have argued that verse number 32 um, is the truth in which really all of Romans hinges on. That it's going to be, that, as, as one man has said, the divine Everest. The peak upon which um, all of Romans and all of Christian life um, hang. That it is going to be that place of height um, in which we stand amazed as we stand there on the Everest of this divine promise. So, number one, Paul's amazement. We see Paul's amazement in verse number 31, what shall we say then, or what then shall we say to these things? And there really is an amazement to the Apostle Paul in that phrase. But before we get to that, what are the these things? Um, it's arguable that these things are those, that great precious promise in verse number 28 through verse number 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. And what you find in that are, are some, uh, some of these things. And that it could very well be that the... the um, the overflow of the Apostle Paul's affections find their height in verse number thirty-one with this rhetorical question. It's not an actual question in which he's asking for you, any of us to discern the conclusion. It's not a legitimate question, as in if or what if um, in that case. But what you're going to find is this this panoply this this. Um, this domino effect of just rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question in verse 31 through verse number 39. Um, and it's going to, 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 to be built upon what Paul has already concluded. It's not as if he's actually asking, what then do we say to these things? As if he's trying to help you come to a conclusion as to what you should say about those. No, this really is a doxology. This is Paul at the height of Christian theology as he stands back there on the Mount Everest of this divine promise and the promises before and the promises that will be after. And he stands like us if we were to make it to the top of Mount Everest. If we were to climb and make that trek, can you imagine the amazement that we would have as we stood upon the peak of that mountain and saw the world in a fashion in which we had never seen it before? I imagine that all of us um, would want to say something Yet at the same time, we would have no idea really what to say. Um, One theologian actually argues that when Paul gets to this, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, in some sense, what in the world could we say about these things? As if you can't. Yet at the same time, what he's going to try to do is to say something about these things. And that's the goal of the pastor, the preacher, the father, um, the, the Christian. When you when you engage in evangelism, when you're trying to disciple your children, when you're standing before your flock or your people, or you're trying to communicate incommunicable things. You know? Sometimes you just you don't know what to say. In some sense, that's exactly what he's saying here. And it could be that he's saying it in in accord to verses twenty eight through thirty. That that before the world even began he foreknew, He predestined, He conformed, um, He he called, He justified, He glorified. That there is in this past tense, this reality that has been put into play in time and reality, that God would accomplish all of His purposes and that He wants you to know that all of those things, for those who love God, are working together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. If that's the case, then, then we we too have a right this morning to stand before and say, what in the world do you say about something like that? It's too high and heavenly for creatures like us to be able to put into words, yet this morning we will try. Um, Some have argued that it's all of Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8 has been argued by Christians throughout the ages um, as the greatest chapter in the greatest book in Scripture. And anecdotally, as an individual personally, I'm not going to argue as a theologian that that's necessarily true, because we know that all Scripture is inspired with God, but I can tell you personally that 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 commentator got it right in my own life. That this has been the greatest chapter of the greatest book in Scripture for me as a Christian, as a child of God. Another commentator says Romans 8 is the inner sanctuary in the cathedral of the Christian faith. And I think that's true. Of a Puritan said, if the Scripture were a ring, Romans would be the precious stone. And chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. And I would go on to add, in addition to that, Romans 8.31-39 would be almost the peak of the star that, that sparkles from that glorious ring. That in it, I was convinced years ago, Having labored through the book of Romans, and labored through particularly Romans chapter number eight, that when I got to the end of Romans chapter number eight, and actually somewhere in the middle of it, there is no way that I could ever lose my salvation. That I would persevere as the Spirit of God persevered in me, gave me that reality of salvation in a package deal, and would write upon my heart the law of God, that new covenant promise would be fulfilled in time and reality, in the heart of my soul, that the Spirit's operation, all throughout the book of Romans chapter number 8, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of adoption, that, that, that the assurance and hope of a future adoption, um, would, would come and that, that, that we, as God's people, um, would have every right to recall this portion of Scripture when we ever began to doubt. Um, and I walked away with a full assurance of my salvation and that if God be for me, who could be against me? And um, that God is working in me. That if I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. But through the Spirit's work in my life, even not only with, with those positive aspects of the Christian life, with the Word and with prayer and a whole host of other means of grace, um, but that even with my sin, as God would bring me to the end of myself, I and mean, in the mortification of it, that God would even utilize my sin to provoke me and propel me towards Himself. I and mean, that's what we find in the book of Romans. And it could be that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9 and 8 as he got to the end of the work of the Spirit of God and the life of the believer and in God and in the Son Himself that he says, well, what do we say to these things? Could be. Some argue it's actually the whole book of Romans. That every point up to this point Paul is saying, is concluding that an argument has been made up to this point in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter number 8. And he he is just reflecting upon everything that he has stated up to this point. That in Romans one through three, we are condemned before God and do not have a righteousness of our own, but that righteousness is afforded to us in Christ Jesus as He is delivered up to the Father. That we He receives the condemnation. That we deserve and gives to us a righteousness not His own. And that righteousness, that provision for it, is delineated in chapters 5 all the way through 8. And that through that union and communion with Christ, we become dead to the law and alive in Jesus Christ. And through the Spirit's work in our lives, um, we will never be lost. Yet at the same time, there's a reality to Paul's thinking. Romans chapter number seven, we, 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 we encounter another great peril of the Christian life, and that is that remaining sin in our lives in Romans chapter seven, verses seven through 13. That Paul brings us through salvation, that gospel that is proclaimed in chapter one, verses 16 and 17. And He brings us through the condemnation of all men. He brings us through the righteousness that is afforded to us in Jesus Christ alone. He brings us through practical Christian living in Romans chapter number 6 that as we are united with Christ, we die to sin and we're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We're to yield our members over to righteousness and not unrighteousness. Why? Because we have been united to Christ. Yet in Romans chapter number 7, Paul laments, O wretched man that I am. And it may be very well be, That on the basis of that, we encounter Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 1 as Paul um, expresses his own heart in the nature of his remaining sin and the fact that he battles with it. That there's a law written upon his heart that he desires to do, yet at the same time, he does not do it. O wretched man that I am, deliver me from this body of death. In Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 1, it it catapults into this this great and precious promise to all those that are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what we see in Romans chapter number 8 is that it begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation, that nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God to those who are in Christ, that you will and never will be condemned. Does that mean that you can live a life of ultimate sin? And because now you have that gift of Christ and you can do and live as freely as you desire, no, he's already dealt with that in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1. May I um, live in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if, 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 if grace abounds because of sin, then the argument that some may make is that I may sin all the more that grace more may abound. Paul says, no, God forbid. No, 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 no. And then he gives us the operation in chapter number 8 of the Spirit as he, as he retains that believer, grows him in Christ until that day in which you will see him face to face. And Paul may be very well saying in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 31 to the whole um, reality of Romans 1 up to 8 at this point. What shall we say to these things? It's a provocative speech. It's a form of speech that is to provoke you. With that rhetorical question to draw out from the listener the obvious. That it is obvious. There's nothing to say about these things. And it's not that there's nothing to say. Volumes have been written throughout all the ages and tried to say um, exhaustively exactly what these things mean. But Paul is bringing to the reality and to the listener, to to you and to me this morning, that these realities, that these truths, that, that, that experientially speaking, we stand upon the evidence of the divine promise this morning and our breaths are taken away. It is to provoke in you this morning amazement. Are you amazed by Jesus Christ? Are you amazed that in Romans chapter 1, you were on this this, uh, decline into your sin that had God, by the power of His Spirit, through the operation of His Word and the proclamation of the Gospel, had He not intervened, that you would be under condemnation this morning. And He rips you and grips you out of that sin, calls you to Himself, brings into you new life, and that today you are persevering wholly by His grace. Do, are you amazed this morning? That's what Paul is getting at. Paul stands back, and I imagine that if it was like the Psalms, as a psalmist um, uh, brings us these realities of truth, often you'll see a little phrase called "sila." It means step back and ponder. It's a pause in the psalm to reflect upon the words that were just said, the great truths that were proclaimed. And in, in, in some fashion, we may, in verse number 31, um, present you this rhetorical question. With the obvious stop and refrain for a sailor. Are you not amazed? What shall we say to these things? That Paul's theology is more than just logical; it's more than just a reasonable argument. He comes uh, just as, as more than just a a lawyer with a pre- with with precision, um, taking a knife to the objector's arguments and dismantling um, the the evolutionary mindset, the mindset of a secular world and sin altogether. Paul's more than just an ivory tower theologian; he is one who is affected by his theology. He's not just a rigorous a man who's given over to exercise, who, who, who climbs the mountain and says, we've done that, now we need to move on to the next. No, there is a purpose that he has, he has, he has climbed up that mountain. I and mean, it's more than just another goal in his life. Um, and thus, along with this great theology, Paul stops for just a moment to stand in amazement. As he looks around at the world before him and the theology. And thus he says, what do we say to these things? Then again, it could be that he is arguing that, that not only those things, the things that were just given, is he amazed at, but too in the middle of that argument, which he's not complete with. He's about to go into a doxology. He now moves on and says, it could be that these things is what he's about to say. And I think that it's probably all of it. What shall we say to these things? And we see Paul's amazement. Secondly, we see Paul's argument. Verse number 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him from up from us all. Paul's argument is, again, another rhetorical question. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And again, it's not as if Paul actually wants you to answer this as a legitimate question. He has already concluded what is obvious. And as the reader reads up to this point, it should be obvious to them as well that there is no enemy that compares to our Lord. We know that enemies exist. In just a moment, they're going to be labeled. Right? All the things that stand against us. Yet at the same time, if you know the Lord, it's as if Paul is saying, it is as if enemies don't exist. I mean, if God is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the rhetorical question Paul is asking is, is that it should be obvious. No one. No one. If God be for us. And think about that for just a moment. If God be for us. I don't know if you've ever thought much about it. But little words like that, for us, can mean the world and then change an entire expression. And I think when we think think of God, at least in my own life and even as I preach, I've probably preached, proclaimed, and to you as much as to my own soul, and the reality more so that God is with us. And you could say that I really don't see much of a difference, but I think there is a difference. I think that there is a difference between God with us and God for us. Both are great, both are true, both are phenomenal, but different. And I think arguably God for us is greater. That God with us is the result of God for us. Again, God with us is paramount. And God with us is something that we need to know. The the, the Scriptures are are replete with examples of that, right? We, we, We think about God with us, Emmanuel, that great and precious name given to our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, that He would come and dwell with us. We think of the comforter, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, who's there to help and aid us. That's God with us. Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. In those trials, you and I need to know that God is present. He is with us. But God for us is a little different. God for us. Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You number my wonderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. In God I will praise His Word. In the Lord I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Maybe when I'm in trials, what I really need to know is God is with me. They're alongside me. Like a Barnabas, an encourager, the Spirit of God coming to aid me. But when I'm standing against the enemy, like the psalmist, um, maybe I need to know that God is for me. Maybe I need to know God is for me. And maybe, just maybe, again, it's total speculation, but Psalm 56, verse 8 and 9, sounds a lot like Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and on. It sounds like a man who is struggling with the enemy. And he looks and cries out to the Lord because the enemies are upon his back, and he needs to remind himself that God is not only with me, but God is for me. That when the enemy comes against, the truth that he clings to is God is for me. You may say, ask the question then: How much is God for me? Well, verse thirty-two, we're going to see how much. But I would want to give you the, uh, but I too want to give you the new covenant promise in Jeremiah thirty-two forty where you read these words of the covenant that God is going to make. And that covenant is ratified in the act that is proclaimed in verse 32. But Jeremiah 32, verse 40, you see this promise. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from, them from good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land then he says, with all my heart and with all my soul. From thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people. So I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. One pastor says, quote, God with all the intent and power of the divine being rejoices to do us good. Be with us and be for us. With everything he is. That's what he said. That's, what he, that's what's contained in that verse in Jeremiah thirty-two. Yes, I will rejoice over them and do good to them. I will surely plant them in this land with, with all my heart and with all my soul, with all that is within God. All the wisdom, all the mercy, all the power, all the grace, all the holiness. In some respect, Jeremiah is arguing, God is proclaiming, He is promising. Paul is is recounting here that it is all for it is all directed to you. His child, his daughter, his son in the faith. He is promising this covenant which he binds himself to an oath to fulfill. This is why Paul is standing without words. Why? Because he's at the top of Mount Everest over Romans chapter 8 through Romans chapter number 1. And what he sees contained within that is all of God. And all of His wisdom, all of His mercy, all of His praise, all of His grace, all of His holiness, all of His glory. And that, that's not all that He is, but He is saying that all that He is, is directed towards you. All that is within His heart, and all that is within His soul. And that's why He comes back with that great rhetorical question. If that's the case, then who can be against you? Who? Name one, he says. It is almost as if the enemy does not exist. It is God who works. A man by the name of Octavius Winslow, he's a contemporary of Spurgeon, Um, writes these words. He says, quote, Who is against us? And then he goes on to delineate, Satan is against us. All his force, all his wisdom, all his malice, all his subtlety, all his skill, all of his minions are exerted and marshaled in tremendous opposition to the interest of the child of God. And he goes on to say, who is against us? The world is against us too, he says. It will never forgive the act by which we broke from its, its allegiance, renounced its sway, relinquished its pleasures, resigned its friendship, nor will it forget that the godly, self-denying, unearthly life of the Christian is a constant and solemn rebuke of its worldliness. It's irreligion and it's folly. Worst of all, he goes on to say, there's another opposition to the Christian. We utter but a a home truth and a self-evident one. When we add these forms of hostility, that our hearts are against us. And after all that we said, our most powerful and treacherous foe is the one in which we cherish in our bosom. Oh yes, he says. The sin that dwelleth in us, a heart deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, a body of corruption and death forms a source of opposition to our holiness and furtherance in the divine life as continuous and powerful as it's humbling and distressing to our renewed nature. With this mighty phalanx, he says, and a phalanx was a, was a Greek army that would be like a formidable foe locked together in arms that would, that would, that would advance upon the enemy. He says, he says, with a mighty phalanx, this mighty army opposed to us, it is not a marvel that any child of God should maintain a stand at last and at last arise in heaven. What he's saying there, I don't know that I read that quite the way that it should have been. But what he's saying is is that he's recounting his enemies. In some sense he's not saying that there are none. He's going to rec- he's going to he's going to delineate upon those in just a moment. He's going to say that there are enemies. And he's going to and what he's doing is is that he is he is meditating upon those he's saying experientially, as well as theologically, we do have enemies. Who's our enemy? Satan's our enemy. Who's our enemy? The world's our enemy. Who's our enemy? Um, uh, uh, ourself. We are our own enemies. That uh, we can lock ourselves up in a box all day long and we'd still wake up with us. And that's enough to sin without being enticed by the world or Satan. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, with this mighty army opposed to us, it's a marvel that any of us should make it to heaven. And that's the truth. But this wonder ceases, he says, when our eyes light upon the words. If God is for us, who can be against us? John Newton says, No enemy can deprive us of the holy love by which God favors us, or the grace which He has given us, or the glory which He has preserved for us. Now what shall we say to these things? This is to say that there are no enemies that even compare what he's saying is, is he's saying, when we look at the world as, as I believe as Luther said, as I look at myself, as I look at the world, I, I wonder how in the world I could be saved, and that 's a paraphrase, but when I look at Christ, I wonder how I could be not how I could not be that that 's the idea that yes, there is sufficient reason to question whether or not we will make it to heaven But... but But we are to take our eyes off of ourselves, the world and the flesh, and to look to Christ and find all solace in that reality. And you may say, how in the world do you know that pastor? In fact, from a pastoral perspective, from a family um, reality, from my own individual heart, you sit before people and they're in utter despair. You know? I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody in utter despair upon your porch as they recount possibly even taking their own life. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about men in utter despair like Elijah as he sits under a juniper tree. As Jonah, he says, just throw me into the ocean. As David, as he's at the end of himself and, and, and just a whole host of other people. And you look at them and you just, and you just say, hope, hope in God, brother. Look to Him. And he looks back at you and he says, What is there to hope in? How do you know that? How do you know what you cling to is real? You know? I've lost everything. I've lost my wife. I've lost my family. My job is in shambles. I can't go home. I can't go back to my church. You want to tell me God loves me? Real conversation. This is life. Like How in the world could you look at me and say that God loves me? How is there any hope? How can I move on from here? What's your justification? That's a great argument and it sounds good in a fairy tale as I read it to my children. But but how can you say that? And I say verse 32, because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That here what you find is the divine reason for such, a, such an assertion. It's not a, it's not a groundless assertion. That, that, that great hope and the, the amazement of these things and that great hope as you stand before those who are in peril and ready to give up their lives and to give up hope um, as, a, as even a child of God. They've come to the end of themselves. Maybe they're like a Jonah in the belly of a fish or they're upon the boat and he knows his theology. It's all correct. He understands it enough to even tell the pagans about his God. Yet at the same time, he cannot go to Him. He cannot pray a prayer in which he will even here. He cannot muster up in his own being um, a, a prayer to go to this God. <clears throat> so what do we say to a man like Jonah? As he stands there in peril and says, if this is what it means that God's for me, or, then I don't want anything to do with it. How do you justify that? How do you justify such a statement? Well, then you see, that Paul's argument continues. And it gives that divine reason, that foundation, that justification for the statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know that? How do you know that? On what basis? And Paul says, because He gave you His Son. And he delivered Him up for us all. Then you can know that He's going to give you all other things freely. That His grace doesn't end at the cross. But it begins there. And know that just yes, God is for you. Let's look at the phrase. Who? He did not spare His own Son. This is the argument that He's going to make. It's going to be an argument of greater to the lesser. He's going to say if this is true, then everything else below it you can expect. That's the idea. That if God did this, no, He'll do more. And that God is for you. I'm literally, in the original... You read it like this. Who his son did not spare. And in the original, remember that Greek order matters. That When you wanted to emphasize something, you could just jumble it all up. Like the Greeks would read and they would, they would put it all together in their mind as a, reading, as a reading along. But one way that they would emphasize it, like we would do today in a Word document with a bold, right? Their bold would be Greek order. And the first order word there would be who. Who his own son did not spare. who Who is the who. If you go back to 8.31, you'll find that the antecedent there is God. That it is the God who is for us. and that, that, that the God who is for us is the same God who did not spare His own Son. His own Son is next in the order of words. So God, His own Son, it says. His own Son is in the beginning. Even before the verb. He says, God, His own Son. It's placed there to emphasize the reality of God in relationship to His Son. is to be read emphatically. And it's not just the Son or His Son, but it is His only Son. Which expresses the uniqueness of the Son. It's used as well in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3 when you speak of His only Son. It's equivalent to John 3.16. The unique Son of God. As you read there, His only begotten Son. It speaks of the eternal reality of the God, of the God, of the person of the Godhead, the Son, Jesus Christ. That there never was a time in eternity when Jesus was not the Son of the Father. And in the fullness of time when God sent forth his Son, His only Son, His only begotten Son. In other words, God determines before the foundation of the world the manner in which He would save a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he does not. Uh, and in that, He does not go outside of Himself to create a human being to bear that weight. Nor does He call an angel or legions of angels to be sacrificed on anyone's behalf. No, He calls forth His Son. His only Son. His unique Son. Hebrews says the very image of the invisible God. And you've heard that a million times. But I would ask you just for a moment to think and meditate upon that phrase. His only son. The significance of the phrase lies in God's unique relationship and His love, His unique love for His son. To understand that a little bit, maybe you can think of a family relationship. For example, when I read... He did not spare His own Son. I immediately think of my own sons. All six of them. The love that I have for them is immeasurable. I pray that it's expressed in the daily life as I give myself over to them in continual sacrifice. Imperfectly, but I strive for faithfully. And possibly, even unto death one day. Who knows? Who knows? But that love, which we would say is, is a love that reaches the heights of human experience, will never be comparable to the infinite love that the Father... Had for his own son. Take the love that I have. Take the love that you have. Take the love of a mother. Take the love of a parent. Think about all that you have done. Think about all that you will do. Think about all that you would do. In the event to, to, to contribute to their good. For God's glory. Think about it. All that you would give up. All that you would sacrifice on their behalf. And think about that. And think it doesn't even measure. To the infinite reality of God. That as much as I love my son, Isaiah 42 verse 1, he says, I delight in mine elect one, my chosen one, speaking of Christ. And then you hear the shocking statement he did not spare. And that's the shocker of the verse. This Son, whom is in the perfect image of the Father, reflects Him in all manners, perfect in majesty, glory, beauty, perfection, and holiness, in whom the Father has an unbridled union and communion Him with all the ages. There never was a time in which He did not know Him and did not relate to Him and did not fellowship with Him. Quote, He did not spare. Naturally speaking, we would look at the love that we have for our sons as being manifested in our sacrifice for them, not our sacrifice of them. Naturally, it doesn't even make sense. From a father's perspective, we don't understand this. I can tell you that I have a sacrificial love for my boys. But I don't think of sacrificing them for the love of something else. It wouldn't enter into my mind. And there is no doubt in my mind either that the purpose of these exact words is to draw our minds back to Genesis chapter 22. Speaking of Abraham and Isaac. And if you read the book of Genesis with some sense of reality and a little sanctified imagination, I don't know how you read it without looking and saying, like, what do you say about these things? You enter into the narrative and what you find is that you find a man who's been given a promise. And this promise is that he would have a son. And in that son would be blessed all the nations. And you can imagine in Genesis 22 as God says, hey, I want you to take your son. Go up to the top of a mountain. And you're going to end his life. You can imagine the internal struggle that must have ripped him apart. You think back to the conversation with God as he wrestled, or we would have wrestled at some point, not having a son considering God's promise, that he would bless the nations through him. And he, and, and he calls God, as it were, to account as to the nature and fulfillment of that promise. Yet, Abraham dutifully fulfills. Genesis 22, 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took the fire in his hands and a knife, and and, and together the two went. Verse number seven. Man, you can just, if you're a father, you're just out with your son. Maybe you're going hunting. Like you can imagine the conversation that happened that day. The text says that Isaac spoke to his father and said, Father, and he says, here I am, son, my son. And he said, look, we've got the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Isaac willingly submits to the father. You can imagine he's probably a 17, 18 year old boy. At least he's a young man. Abraham's a number of in years. At any moment, you think, man, Isaac should have ran. Like, why in the world wouldn't you? He could have overpowered his father. You don't see any of that in the text. You see, Isaac, you say, okay, dad, I'll go. He submits to the Father's will. He carries up the wood. Isaac is there upon the altar. The text says Abraham is willing not to spare his own son. The text says Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The knife is drawn back and the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, the text says. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham's son is spared. God provides a ram. Listen, there's the power of the text. Abraham's son is spared, God's son is not. You can imagine what's going through Abraham's mind, Father. If you take the Son, how in the world will the nations be blessed through your seed? In a similar way, God the Father has sent God the Son. God the Son willingly takes it upon himself that the, the, the wood to take up to Mount Moriah to be slain there by the Father. And the and the great rhetorical question that the Father is 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 is, is now, I don't want to say troubled with that day, but, but 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 that we could ask is 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 he could be asking if if not this, then how in the world will the world be blessed? There on Golgotha's hill, there is our Lord Jesus Christ hang upon the tree. In the spirit of Genesis twenty-two, the knife is drawn; it's ready to fall. Not so much by the strength of Rome or the conspiracy of Israel, but by the hand of the Father, He did not spare. There was no ram nearby that was sufficient. There was no one that could stand forth and take his place. He had no substitute. There was no other option around. Why? Because there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There is no other sacrifice that would accomplish the salvation of you or me or any other creature. Had God had he spared not his only son, then man could not have been saved. The righteous demands of the law would not have been met, thus He did not spare. Try to capture the full weight of those words in your mind. Grasp the weight of it. So often we emphasize the willing sacrifice of the Son, and rightfully so. As He does the unthinkable voluntarily, willing comes to save sinners like us. But here, the love of the Father shows forth in what He gave. What he would not spare. Infinitely greater than Abraham. Does what did not require Abraham to do. Spared his own son. His only son. And if you struggle with what Abraham did. In taking up his only son. And what he was about to do. And then struggle even infinitely more. The love that God the Father has for us. And that he would give his only son. Otherwise none of us would be saved. Why? For us all, he says. For us all, verse number 32. But he delivered him up for us all. For us all. Not one softened blow. Not one softened blow. But he would feel the wrath of the Father. Why? For us all. He would be delivered up, the text says. He gave him over. Or could be saying he delivered him up. Octavius Winslow goes on to say, says, knowing, the redemp- knowing what redemption required, stern justice, demanding full satisfaction, of the law rigid and unbending, demanding perfect obedience, he withheld not only the sacrifice that could meet the case, he spared not his own son. He did not rela- relax one ounce of the requirement or abate one ounce of the suffering. Oh no, the utmost payment was exacted. the last drop of the cup was drained. Had there been at least a relaxing of the law's stringency or the slightest curtailment of the law's penalty, then there would not have been no salvation for any of us. He goes on to say, and all of this was to reveal, to unveil the love of God. And and so to spare His people, He spared not His Son. Amazing love, how could it be that you, my King, should die for me? Octavius Winslow goes on to say, who delivered up Jesus to die? He asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to die? He says, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. He was delivered, Romans 4, up for our transgressions, for us. For us. The Son son was raised up. Why? For hell-bound rebellious, hopeless, helpless enemies of God. For us, that's what he means when he says for us. Not good and grand people. Read the book of Romans. Uh, Not the spiritual elite. Not those who would actually attribute or contribute to his cause outside of himself. No, no, he delivers him up for us all. That He would become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This really is, for us, really is the great mountain peak in the book of Romans. The heights of Romans 8.32 are unsurpassed. At this peak, we stand back and say, what shall we say about these things? The ineffable love of the Father that He would spare not His only Son. Why? But deliver Him up for you or you and think do I love someone enough ever be able to do that with one of my sons I don't know that I do yet he spared not and then we see Paul's application see Paul's Paul's not just telling you this to tell you this so that you become a mindless sack of emotions (laughs) No, Paul's telling you this because you need this for the Christian life. You need to note Paul's argument. and What Paul does is Paul argues that so that he could go on with this doxology of realities to enable you to live the Christian life in such a way to know that you are victors. Why? Because if God be it for you, who can be against you? Well, how in the world is, 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 is that carried out? And we'll know this, that if He who gave His only Son did not spare Him up, but delivered Him up for us all, then know this, that He shall also freely give you all things. What He's saying is, He's saying that if you believe that, theology matters, and it pours out over into your devotion, that, 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 that if you believe that, then the way that you look at the world, the way that you receive information, the way that you interpret the events around you, you know what it should be? It should be different. Right? Like, if that's true, then everything about you, everything around you, the events, the circumstances, and the reality of the world, you should look at differently. You should read Jonah differently now. Maybe some of you have struggled with the way that I've presented it. Why? Because you look at Jonah, man, and you almost hate the guy. (laughs) I mean, or at least you, you resent him. Like he's, he's a biblical character in which stands out among the rest and in his disobedience and rebellion that doesn't seem to be resolved by the end of the story. Yet at the same time, when you look at Jonah, you know it's not a story about Jonah and the whale, it's a story about God's pursuit of Jonah. And restoring fellowship to him, his unending commitment, his covenant obligations, Therefore, and they look different. Jonah may step back and say, man, God really hates me. Um. I'm not sure that God's for me at all, maybe he said to one of the pagan mariners. But when you understand what God is doing, when you understand who God is and his covenant commitments to you and I, what it begins to do is melt away um, all of those, dis- all that, that, that sinful thinking, um, and realize that all the things that are happening around me. Um, in some sense, is God's pursuit of me. And that God is for me. That He's not angry with me in the sense of a sinful way. It's not as if He's going to cast me out His own son. But He comes with a righteous anger and the discipline of a father to a son. And that sometimes those things that we don't understand are the things that He does to make us more like Him. They are these freely giving us all things. I love it. That word freely give is the same word that we get our word grace from. It's, it's, just, it's just a verb form. You could literally uh, read it like this. He, di- How shall he not with him also grace us with all things? What things? Anything? No. It's not a blank check that you can use to gain every single uh, one of your heart's desires. But the all things are all the things necessary for your sanctification, for your ultimate salvation, and for your perseverance. That God is committed to you to give you whatever is necessary, to keep you, that you may persevere. John Flavel says, quote, an old Puritan, Jesus Christ, is a comprehensive mercy, including all other mercies in Himself. He is the tree of life. All other mercies are but fruit growing on him. He is the Son, S U N of righteousness. Whatever comfort, spiritual or natural refreshes your soul or body is but a beam from that sun, a stream from that fountain. If then God part with Christ to you and for you, He will not withhold other mercies. He will not give a whole tree and deny an apple. He will not bestow a fountain upon you and deny you a drink. What He's arguing is is that if He gave you His Son, no, He will give you all things. Imagine yourself for a moment a man who's given his own life for a, a woman, a couple's given their lives over for this one thing. You can imagine. I, I meet mean people like this all day long and they've, they spent 20 years to buy this one thing. You know what they do? They guard it with all that they have. They'll buy the fence that goes around it. They'll buy the security system. Why? Because it means something to them. They paid for it. They bought it. It cost them something. In a similar fashion, a greater, more infinite fashion, can you imagine the God of heaven and earth giving His only Son and then taking down the guardrails? Removing the fence, giving it over to the world, the flesh, and the devil without any protection. No, if God sent His own Son into the world, He spared him not. He did the costliest thing. No, that He will protect it with all that He is and all that He has. You have nothing to worry about. And that's the the, the foundation of the fountain for the rest of the passage. Verse 33, Who then shall bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Why? Because if He did that, He'll do more. It is God who justifies. He says, who can condemn you? He says in verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God the Father and making intercession for us. That He is protecting you even by His own intercessions now at the right hand of God the Father. He goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Therefore, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created being shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can you say that? Because if He was willing to give us His Son, then we should be convinced of His love and recognize that that which cost Him the most to purchase out of this world, He will protect it all lengths. It may not come as you think it ought to be. It may not represent itself in the circumstances like you think that it ought. But neither did it for Jonah. Yet in His providence and in His 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 disciplinary chastising hand as a father to a son, He does what is necessary, which seems extreme to us in cases. Yet know that it is the shepherd leaving the ninety of nine and going for the one outside the fold. That it is a father pursuing his son. And he will do it at all costs, even at the cost of his own son. What shall we say to these things? Are you convinced this morning of the love of Christ for your soul? If so, take heart. Be amazed. Listen to the argument. Believe Paul's logical, reasonable precision as a lawyer. Yet at the same time, stand upon that mountain In utter amazement and apply it to your life. The problem is is that we um, handle our lives much like we handle the Scriptures on some days. And we read into the text. And we draw out of the text. And we read ourselves into the text things that aren't there. And we come up with heresy. Many of us do that with our lives. We read into our lives and we put ourselves at the center of the universe. Failing to recognize... That we are to exegete the Scripture and pull out the meaning of the text. And Paul would love nothing more for you. And I would love nothing more for you today than to take the reality of this text and interpret your life in light of it. You may wonder today if God cares. You may wonder today if God is apathetic. You may wonder today if God is even there. You may wonder... In a future day. Um, Whether God loves you at all. I pray that this text. Preaches to you. John Flavel quote and we'll be done. When God spared not his own son. This was the design of it. Could you know his thoughts and hearts. They would appear like this he says. This is God speaking. Again just John Flavel playing with his own mind. I will now manifest the fierceness of my heart to Christ. And my fullness and my love to believers. The pain shall be his. The ease and rest will be theirs. The stripes will be his and the healing balm issuing from them theirs. The condemnation his, the justification theirs. The approach and shame he is, the honor and glory theirs. The curse he is, the blessing theirs. The death he is, the life theirs. The vinegar he is, the sweetness theirs. He shall groan, they shall triumph. He shall mourn, they shall rejoice. His heart shall be heavy for a time that their hearts may be light and glad forever. He shall be forsaken that they may be never. And out of the worst of miseries to Him shall spring the sweetest of mercies to them. He ends with, O grace. Now you don't have to believe this to be saved. And you can walk away here today like many Christians do in despair. Right? Oh God, are You for me at all? But I would encourage you to believe this text because it will be the ground of your perseverance. It will be the ground of your victory. It will be the ground of your effectiveness in this world. Um, And may God use it forever to amaze you by the argument that's made. And may you apply it in your life in a way that provokes you onto faithfulness in the Lord as you interpret the reality of your life That God is for you, committed to you. And if he gave you his only son, did not spare him, he will not spare anything else to keep his covenant and commitment to you. Know today that if you are in Christ, you are loved. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you. Praise you for the glory that is in Christ. And um, the immeasurable love, Father, that you've extended to us in your son. Father, we do stand amazed. Especially, Father, when we reflect upon our own lives and look at our own souls in the mirror. Father, we wonder why you would save such a sinner as I. Yet it's not long, Father, that we look to the cross. Um, We do not, Father, spend too much time in introspection wondering why in the world no one should love us but spend more time in the reality that you do and today it becomes so much more ever a reality as we look into Romans chapter number 8 and are reminded of the great cost that not only it cost the Son but that it cost you why? For us all. So, Father, help, let us return the favor out of a debt of gratitude, not earning one iota salvation. But, Father, in, in perspective, building our lives, Father, upon the reality that we love you because you first loved us. So, Father, encourage our hearts today. Help us to hide these words away in our heart that we might not sin against thee. Father, encourage the saints And they're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. um, That if you be for them, nothing can be against them. In all that you've called them to do, and all that they are, Father, they are because you love them. So convince us, Father, this morning of your love. And may it affect not only our souls, but our hands. May it give us more vigor and diligence in the fight. And, Father, may we stand sure and fast in faithfulness as a result of the love that the Father has for the Son. And if you call us, Father, not only to live but to die, and may we die well, the soldiers of Jesus Christ.